Hey, welcome to Life 2.0 Podcast. I'm John St. Augustine. Time to go up the down staircase, kids in the outdoor. Make sense out of the senseless. And if at all possible, find the obvious buried in the friggin' absurd. Let's do it. So delighted to have you back with me from everywhere and everywhere around planet Earth. Uh, Every Saturday morning, I get in here and I get so jacked up to do this show. I can't even begin to tell you. As I've said many times before, I spend most of my week producing audio for other people, clients and podcasts and all sorts of audio books and things. So I'm pretty quiet all week, believe it or not, which means I unload on Saturday morning, I guess. But yesterday I had the, the opportunity to go back on the air live for a while. Uh, my good and great friend, gal pal Jennifer Weigel was sitting in here in Chicago on WCPT, Chicago's Progressive Talk. And she was sitting in for the legendary Joan Esposito. So everybody's sitting in each other's seats and Jennifer said, you know, you want to come in for a little while? Absolutely. You know, one of the things about this business is that you have to help each other out. You have to support each other because we all know how tenuous this business really is. So when I've sat in at uh, various radio stations, I'll have Jennifer come in and we go back and forth and, you know, just a great tag team. And back in the day when I was at WGN, I thought that this is it for me, boy. You know, I come to find out that the great late Roy Leonard was a huge fan of mine. I had never met Mr. Leonard. I'd listened to him growing up. I thought he was the best interviewer I'd ever heard. And so when I got my chance at WGN, which would have been 2013 through 2015, geez, long time ago already. Um, I come to find out that Roy had been calling the general manager at the time and saying, this is your guy. This is the guy you give the 10 and 20 year contract to. This is the guy you build your, either your morning or your midday, you know, uh, shift around. And I was so flattered by that, even though we had never met uh, at that time. And then probably a year and a half later, when I found all this out, I went to the Chicago Broadcast Museum. They were honoring Roy Leonard there. I was so nervous to meet him. Not just because my admiration for his work, but to think that this guy was calling on my behalf, unsolicited. I didn't even know the man. I just found that to be a great core sampling of why I still do what I do. You know, whether I was on WGN talking to, you know, a half million people or on Oprah Radio talking to five million people or on a podcast years later talking to, I have no idea how many people I'm supposed to do this. And I approach all of them the same way. So when Jen said, come on in, of course I'm going to go in. We do this because we support each other in uh, talk that matters, in our opinion. So I'm in there yesterday, and, uh, you know, she's a pro. Let's just flat out. One of the, I admire Jennifer's work ethic. She's a pro. She's prepared, you know, and you can plug and play Weigel anywhere. You could drop her off in Bangladesh at a radio station, and she'd knock it out of the park. So... We're always in each other's good hands. And I, I would think the same for me. You know, it's just this connection we have. It's a chemistry. When I was back at GN, like I said in the day, you know, we had pitched the idea of John and Jen on WGN. It couldn't get any better than that for a billboard. Are you kidding me? And anyway, so one of the things I think that makes it work is, well, we want to get to the same place. We have very different opinions on how to get there. And I think that in itself is a, a telling thing because that's how life should be. We all want to you know, make things better to some greater or lesser degree. How we get there, of course, is how, you know, what we argue about. So 
yesterday we were in and, and going back and forth. And at one point when we took a break, uh, the young producer, I mean, I'm sure this jacket on my wall over here that's hanging up is older than this kid is. And he says, gosh, you know, you guys are fantastic together. Why aren't you, why aren't you doing a show together? And of course we look at each other with that fish eye, like, yeah, kid, we've been hearing this for years. So whether that happens or not, I have no, no control over that or, you know, any idea. It'd be great. It may, it may not. But the thing about it is both of us mush on and do what we're supposed to do. So uh, she did a great job yesterday and to sit in live was always a lot of fun. And she had to leave a little bit early to take care of some personal things. And so I finished up the show. And whenever I get a chance to have a live microphone in front of me, I mean, what you're hearing has been edited a little bit. I don't take any of the shit words out for sure. But if I cough here and there, you know, other sounds, things like that, I try to tighten it up a little bit because that's just the way I do it. And it occurred to me that when Jennifer and I were, you know, doing the thing at WGN, and at the time, she was not on the radio, I don't think. She was uh, working, might have been CBS television. She was a reporter. She was a journalist, Emmy award-winning journalist. Uh, podcasting was just starting, really. And so I would have never guessed, you know, 10, 11 years later, that I could walk into my studio here every morning and just flip, you know, set it up and talk to the world. So in some ways, this makes up in a big way for not being able to walk into WGN, WLS, WCPT, uh, any of the other places I've been and, and, and have a regular shot at it. I could do this every day if I wanted to. I could literally walk in here every morning and knock out a 10-minute segment. Eh, don't want to do that yet, but <laughs> Saturdays are my morning. But here's the thing. I had sent uh, some audio over to, uh, to the station to play while you know I'm on with Jen and, and to have talking points around it. And of course, many of you know this, and I'm so honored to, to always bring this up, is the Earth Matters series with Bill Curtis that I, I scripted, I created it, I researched it. And of course, when you put Bill's voice on it, he could read the, you know, the menu at uh, Li Ho Folk's Chinese restaurant in LA and it would sound brilliant. And so that combination is really a sweet spot for me is when you take really good research, real stuff, not bullshit, you know, real research on things. I spend about three hours to create one minute program called Earth Matters. And so I had sent those over to the, to the producer, but for some reason there was a tech problem downloading them. And so, you know, but he had some other ones that I, in, in the system because Earth Matters had run for three years on WCPT. So they have basically all, so he pulled some up and that was fine. It just wasn't the ones I had, had sent over. But the thing that I wanted to have on the air yesterday in Chicago was what you're going to hear in a second. This has never aired anywhere. And along with the Earth Matters series, I created something called History Matters because I'm not busy enough. So I created History Matters because I think I'm, if there was one pivot point that to me should level everything out, it's studying history. We were watching a show the other night on PBS about the Nazi influence prior to World War II in the United States, that what Hitler was selling was migrating here through the Germans who had been here for a while. And there was, you know, all these groups popping up and here in Chicago, and they had film footage of this guy. And it was the same shit that they're doing now, meaning this guy rises to power because you got a fear base and you're telling people your life is bad because of these people over here. And if we eradicate these people, then your life will somehow be better. And I'm the only guy that can do it. Sound effing familiar? I think it does. This was in 1933. 
So I'm watching that and realizing, I'm like, how many people have seen this? It was new to me, and I have a German heritage. I should know this stuff. And of course, once World War II breaks out, once we got dragged into it, you know, that stuff went into the curb pretty quick. But you can see how this stuff happens when the climate is correct for this type of activity. And in my opinion, observation and experience, the same shit's going on now, and it's been going on. So studying history matters greatly to me because then you could say, oh, this is not, you know, when my, talk to my daughter here and there and, you know, she'll get excited and upset about world events. And I, I can understand, you know, but if you've seen it 19 times, it doesn't tend to piss you off anymore. So to me, history is the thing that keeps the bubble in the middle. It keeps the balance. And so that's why when I hear what the former president's doing or not doing, I don't care. I've seen, have you ever heard of Richard Nixon? You know, did you go through the whole thing with McCarthyism? Did you ever read about McCarthyism? I mean, this is not new. It's just new characters running the same effing old scripts. So it helps me keep my feet grounded when I study history. And so that's why I created the History Matters program. Now, this is only a minute long. And, and a little bit later in the show, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share with you where I think I got this. I had the talent to do it, but I, I'm, where the ideas started to come from, I'll share that in just a little bit. So one of my guys, I have a, quite a few, and ladies, but one of my guys is Teddy Roosevelt. You know, he didn't get it all right. There's nobody does. But a majority of how TR lived his life has been a huge, if not the biggest influence in my life, about the living the strenuous life, that not wasting time because there's no time to waste. And grabbing the gusto, grabbing it by the short hairs, going out and getting it. And, and living your purpose all the time. It's, as it's been said, the two most important days of your life are the day you were born and the day you figure out why. And most people never figure out why. Lives of quiet desperation. So once I figured out my why, I'm not going to stop because this is why I'm here. Got it. This microphone, writing books, doing talks, you know, going up the down staircase in the outdoor, making sense out of the senseless, finding the obvious, buried in the absurd. That's my job. And so that's why every Saturday morning I get behind this microphone and fire it up and throw it out to the world. Whether they're paying me a lot of money at Harpo or people are subscribing to this podcast for 20 bucks a month, it's all the same to me. Because if it isn't, I wouldn't be doing it. That's the bottom line. There's a lot of high-priced radio talent that got bounced out of the studio that are sitting there just collecting checks. Probably better off for the rest of us. They're not behind a microphone. But my point being is this is what I'm here to do. So I wanted to have the History Matters on yesterday, and, and it just didn't download. Today, it's going to freaking download because this is my show, and I got it all figured out. So this is History Matters. It's about Teddy Roosevelt. And when I come back on the other side of this, I'll explain a little bit more. He is without question one of the most powerful and revered of all the men who have held the highest office in the land. But if not for an assassin's bullet, he might never have become president. Theodore Roosevelt is credited with many accomplishments as our 26th president, but did you know that he was only given the nod to be vice president by the Republican Party because they considered him a troublemaker and felt that the benign VP slot would keep him out of the way? All that changed in 1901 when President William McKinley was assassinated. And Roosevelt was next in line. He took the bully pulpit and created everything from the national park system to reforms in business as the trust buster and coined the term square deal, along with building the Panama Canal. 
T.R. was the first president awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, all because of an assassin's bullet. History Matters. I'm Bill Curtis. So History Matters never aired anywhere. We pitched it to the History Channel. Uh, never, Even with Bill's voice on it, we got nothing out of that. Uh, and, and again, you know, when it takes time to create all these things. So while I have three of those sitting there, uh, I'm just very proud of them. I, I think that, you know, you got to study history to see how we've gotten where we're at. And if we don't, you're up shit creek. You know, whitewashing history doesn't change a thing. It doesn't change a thing. So my deal with all of this, for lack of a better term, is that you got to take that deep dive and figure out where you've been, why you're here, and where you're going. And if at all possible, get to some sort of truth that you can live with, right? So the TR thing is a pivot point for me. You don't want to assassinate presidents, and yet if McKinley would have lived, none of what Teddy Roosevelt was supposed to do would have happened. I mean, it's, it's incredible, really, how many times in history a pivot point comes up and it changes the course of things. So I have a picture of TR somewhere in my office here. I got a lot of pictures in here, but I got a picture of TR, and for a while, I'd come in every morning before I started my work. I'd sit here with a cup of coffee, like I have this morning, and I would just have a little mental chat with the former president. Like, how would he see our world? You know, what, what things would he insist be done? And I think he was way ahead of his time on these things, you know, securing the national parks and all the rest that he, he did. I have a conversation somewhere with the great author and historian Doug Brinkley about TR's Wilderness Warrior, and it's about a 600-page book. I got it sitting right here. And it's an extensive read for sure. And I had Doug on when I was at Harpo, and he was talking about how there are certain people that come along and their vision is so far down the line, the people at the time can't see it and they rebel against it. But by the time they get finished, you got to say, yeah, it's a pretty good thing to secure the Grand Canyon in perpetuity. Otherwise, they tear the shit out of it and make condos. Teddy was ahead of his time. You know who else was, I don't think he was ahead of his time, but who was right on time was Charles Osgood. And Charlie Osgood just passed away uh, last week at the age of 91. And when I think about the people in my professional life that have had influence on me, Charlie was one of those guys. Um, I was in the CBS radio orbit for quite a few years, and, and I remember getting an invitation at the time. This has got to be, I don't know, early 2000s. It was after 9-11. Uh, when they started flying again, and things got back to a little bit of, of normalcy. And, they, and CBS was doing these, uh, like in their major markets, they would do some sort of an event. I, I, again, this is getting sketchy. We're going back a long way here, kids. And, and so anyway, there was one of these in Detroit. Now, I was living at the time in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And so I drove. I got an invite because I could work the CBS thing. We were at an affiliate that didn't even have a rating. I mean, come on. You know, at 5 o'clock, they powered down and put the squirrels to bed. So, <laughs> so I drove to Detroit for this CBS thing, and it was all the CBS affiliates and stuff were there, and they went to Detroit and Chicago, absolutely New York and L.A. and wherever else they went. And Charles Osgood was there. And I will never forget something that he said from the podium. He talked about the responsibility of being a journalist. And he said, you know, so much of this is a crapshoot. So much of this is a roll of the dice. You know, you could ha have all the talent in the world and slave away for years, and that's your route. Or, like him, you could be somewhat plucked from obscurity, went from ABC to CBS, and 
all of a sudden something shifts and next thing you know, you're doing the Osgood file. Next thing you know, you're hosting CBS Sunday mornings. And, you know, so there, there's no sure path to quote success in the media. There just is not. And so that does not mean though, that you don't do your job. Cause if success at some major market level is your gauge, probably shouldn't be doing it because that's not the deal, at least not for me. But Charlie got up and said, listen, I am not as talented as some of you. Uh, most of you in this room probably work a little bit harder than I do. He said, but the thing that, that you have to remember is that's, that's not why you're doing it. You're doing this to bring something to people they didn't have before they connected to you, whether it's on television or, or on radio. And I never forgot that. And so over the years, back in the day when I was on CBS, but over the years, uh, we would have conversations. Charlie was a guest on my show a few times, probably six, seven times. And I was saddened to hear that he had passed, but I also knew I was so glad that he was here. I mean, he was 91. He had a great run. What a great life this guy had. And Charlie Osgood, along with Bill Curtis, both CBS guys, I think have been the bookends in my life without really realizing. Now, Bill, of course, and I've been friends for 30 plus years. Charlie and I just acquaintances and professional, uh, you know, connection on radio. Uh, but he was just an engaging guy. And so I went back and I, of course, the audio vault is filled with all kind of shit here. And um, I went back and found a couple of his interviews and I compiled those in a, about a 15 minute segment, which will end the show here. Uh, but I realized the Osgood file, which is about a minute to three minutes long, I think somewhere in there, became an influence on me. That's where I learned to create Earth Matters. That's where I learned to create History Matters. That's where I learned to write power thoughts with these one-minute engaging pieces where I could say a lot in a very short amount of time. Not the long-form bloviating, speculating, and verbally defecating stuff that I do on occasion. These were very short, like Earth History Matters, one minute. Here's here one more illustration of Earth Matters before I get to, uh, to Charlie's interview. So this is about climate change, and, and it's something that, uh, you know, th that to me is 10 years old, but it's more prevalent than it was even back then. For most people, when they hear the term global warming, they immediately think that every winter will be shorter and less intense, and every summer hotter and more intense. That's only partly true. More after this. The mission of the Climate Action Museum is to activate a tipping point on climate mitigation in the Chicago region through education, stimulating critical thought, and inspiring and facilitating direct action. The content of the museum is dynamic, educational, and inspires both short and long-term decisions that mitigate our climate emergency. Located at 300 South Riverside Plaza, right across from Union Station. Find out more at climateactionmuseum.org. While there is no doubt that global warming is a very real threat to humanity and that the influence of seven billion humans living on it affects it to some degree, the natural systems we depend on for life, the weather patterns that have been so destructive in the past decade, are the effects of a system working to balance out the effects of humans along with the ongoing rhythms of Earth itself. The clash of these two very different systems is creating unstable weather patterns. While scientists predict that sea levels will rise and that we can expect much warmer weather, the fact is that the impact of humanity on the planet is still unpredictable. I'm Bill Curtis, and Earth Matters. Now that was 90 seconds. We put a little 30-second thing in there, a plug for the Climate Action Museum here in Chicago, which you should go check out if you're here. 
And so that's 90 seconds. And as I'm listening to that, I, I'm reminded of what it must be like to be a songwriter. You know, that you're not the singer of the songs, you're the songwriter. You write a song and somebody comes along and takes your words and, and puts music to it. And, and those 300 scripts that I wrote for Bill Curtis, it's like writing a song and then him singing it. And you couldn't get a better voice. And I couldn't deliver it that way. And I've done a lot of voice work in radio, but I don't have that voice. And he is just a top notch. Anyway, that was the influence, I think, of the Osgood file without me really knowing it and creating these short form vignettes, as we call them, that would um, give you information that you could use. And what a great concept that is. Instead of just beating the shit out of each other, imagine having stuff you could use and learn from. That's a really good idea. Real quick uh, trivia about uh, Charles Osgood. He uh, was not always Charles Osgood. I don't know if you know this. But uh, while he was at ABC, he began using the name Charles Osgood because the network already had an announcer named Charles Woods. In 2005, interview with Inside Radio, Osgood related the story uh, that they didn't want to have Charles Woods and a Charles Wood. So Charlie Osgood's real name is Charles Osgood Wood III. And they thought it would be a little bit confusing, so they told him to pick a different name. He used his middle name as his last name, and it's worked out pretty well, a little bit more distinctive and professional, and I agree with that. Without further delay, here's Charlie. when you start talking about having the most powerful hours on radio you couldn't possibly have a show like that without having people who have put radio marconi's incredible box really on the map and when i think of those type of people and the voices in radio you think of the people like paul harvey uh, uh the, the late bob collins in chicago and of course somebody who comes to mind is a gentleman who millions of people have been listening to for years with the osgood file charles osgood is the anchor of the cbs news Sunday morning and uh, of course the, the Osgood Files. He has been doing the anchor of CBS Sunday morning uh, since 1994. He has been a, a CBS radio correspondent anchoring and writing the Osgood Files for, for many, many years now, which is broadcast daily on the CBS radio network. Uh, it has four little daily commentaries or on headlines or on little known news stories that Charles goes and picks out and uh, always stimulating to hear some of the, the, the takes that he has on, on the world events. and. He is heard by one of the largest audiences drawn by any network radio feature in radio history. Charlie joins us this morning from Manhattan. Charlie, good morning. Good morning, John. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. And you? Can't complain. What's the point? The weather's, the weather's been sort of crummy around here, baby. Is that right? Yeah, it's raining and raining. But, now, you you still, are you still traveling as much as... Last time I talked, we tried to pin you down. You were like in Paris for four months or something. Well, France. I, France. I, there I, you go. Uh, Paris. But yeah, we have a house over there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I go... Uh, for about eight weeks out of the year, it's a. Uh, my kids started they're going to the to the French school here. Mm -hmm. To reinforce that, we started traveling over there to take vacations, and then we bought a house, and one thing led to another. I can I can actually do the broadcast from over there. Is that right? So it's kind of nice to be able to be with the family and and ha and have a sort of at least to have a vacation and and do the work at the same time. Now, Charlie, do do people in in uh, Europe obviously they see our antics here in the United States far different than we do. Yes, I, I think it's it's fair to say that. Um, but it, why shouldn't they? I mean, yeah. you know, they, they they come from a different part of the world, and they have their own way of looking at things. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, I think you know some of what they do is makes us a little odd. Sure, so. absolutely. Are they big banjo fans over there? Or have they not caught? <laughs> I'm just wondering. You know, are you, are well, you, <laughs> they have not. They, my neighbors have not complained, uh, <laughs> but. Uh, I don't know. Actually, they, you know, they love American music. Yeah. Uh, all of Europe does, but especially the French. Mm. Well, last time you were on the show, we were steeped in the whole uh, Monica Lewinsky thing, and, and uh, I think one of the points that was brought out is, you know, uh, and I, matter of fact, I pulled out that tape from a year or two ago uh, when you were on the show, and one of the last things you said before you got off the air said, we, we have to remember something, that this too shall pass. Mm -hmm. And that has obviously come to pass, and, and now we have these other challenges, Ron. When you're doing the Osgood file and you're digging through all these stories, is, is it your take that you want to pull out something that obviously reminds us of the best within ourselves because there's enough of the other stuff? Is that one of the high points you're looking for? I, yes, I, I would say that all other things being equal, and assuming that I can find them, that meets that description, mm -hmm. uh, I would much prefer to do that than to try to find some other yet, yet more disgusting thing to uh, to tell you about. Right. But uh, that's also in the nature of Sunday morning. Geralt uh, had made it a point to try to discuss... Uh, and meet heroes rather than villains, and and I, and I think it's fair to say that the that the sixty minutes is the exact sure. opposite. You know sure, I mean? sure. You know they have we have this constant pounding of that stuff, and you've been in I won't call how many years you've been in broadcasting, but broadcasting, but you've been in for a while, and. What are some of the major changes you've seen? Has radio and well, I mean that's the medium that I'm in mostly, and as you are well, uh, is is it is it become a weapon in a lot of ways that it was never intended to be? Do you think? I think it's just a medium, you know. It's, mm -hmm. uh, it's neither good nor bad. It depends on what you do with it. And I think, uh, you know, fortunately, there's a lot of room on the dial. If you, if you take all the FM down, all the AM dial, there's an awful lot of stations there. And it's up to us to decide what we want to do with it. I think I used to like it when there was a little more diversity than there seems to be now. Mm -hmm. I mean, almost all the frequencies are devoted to one kind of rock music or another. Not a lot of banjo heard these days. Not a lot of banjo, not a lot of Frank Sinatra or yeah. Elvis Gerald, yeah, yeah, and not a lot of classical music. I, I like classical music myself, mm -hmm. and uh, there's not very much of that. I mean, one, you know, maybe in one big town you'll have one big, one radio station that plays uh, contemporary, I mean, plays American standards, and um, I think that's too bad. But anyway, I mean, that, but that's not something that I think somebody ought to do something about. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I, I think what they do in France, which is to control, you know, and say X percent of the, of the Pieces shall be this, and X percent shall be that, and, and, and a very high percentage should be French. <laughs> I think that's it. You know, people should, I think audiences should go to what they, to what appeals to them. I think that's, that's, uh, I, li I like the way we do it here better. When we talk about talk radio in general, and, and that's a, it's a strange landscape, and to me it even gets stranger sometimes. I can drive from where I live in Upper Michigan down to Chicago or Detroit, and I'll hear 50 people that want to be Howard Stern. You know, they're, they're, yes. they're doing exactly the same thing, and I'm wondering, why does a, a town like uh, uh, Oconto, Wisconsin, need their own version of Howard Stern? And and well, you have a right. I mean, if somebody who wants to be the next Howard Stern sure. has, has a right to sure. buy, you know. And, mm -hmm. and I think when when all of us started in, there was probably somebody that we that we liked and wanted to be like. I think what happens is you get older, and especially if you have some experience in the business, you realize that you can't get anywhere just being another. Yeah. Somebody else. Yeah. You have to be yourself. Yeah. When when we start looking at the pop political end of things, and you do a lot of uh, uh, of your uh, introspective in that area, uh, I would guess there's probably endless material for there. It doesn't matter if it's Democrat, Republican, or other. Whoever's uh, in the higher echelons of Washington, they always got to give you a lot of good material, I would think. Well, yes, except that, you know, 
I find, I find that I'm less interested in, in politics than I am in a lot of other things. And I and I find it kind of maddening and frustrating sometimes to see how how self-serving what, what a lot of politicians say. That's not that's not directed at any one mm-hmm. one party or any one candidate for office. It's just it seems to me that uh, it's it's so transparent yeah. that you know that I'm all good and the other guy's all bad <laughs> is what they seem to be saying all the time. And we know that it's not the case. Yeah. When you start lifting those rocks up and you find these stories for the Osgood file, and and, and, and when you do the things in uh, uh, on the Sunday morning show. It seems to me that's almost a lost art, as you pointed out, because there's so much of this other stuff, the, the hard copy type shows and all those kind of things. Is there? Do you, do you have a real loyal following? Do you think they expect this from Charles Osgood to be this way? I think so, although, you know, I, I have to live in this in the same environment, in the same competitive world. The stations are the same stations that are carrying the other network programs, and, mm-hmm. and it is very competitive. What, what, what made it work for me is that, the audiences seem to like what I'm doing, and, mm-hmm. and they and they come back for it. Now, but, how do you, how do you go about getting all the? I mean, they, do you have a huge research team? How does this stuff come to you? No, uh, when I arrived at the at the broadcast center here in, uh, on 57th Street in New York in the morning, it was about four o'clock, and uh, I open up the door, and it's very dark in there, and I and there's nobody there but me, and I worked for about an hour and a half before uh, you know before anybody else shows up. Mm-hmm. And I'm already writing pieces, so it's uh, it's a it's like writing is always a sort of solitary effort. Mm-hmm. These days, there's a lot of uh, you, you can have a lot of stuff to consult, mm-hmm. and you know the computer, the news wires are a big help uh, mm-hmm. uh, with that. And and my broadcasts are short. I mean, they really it's only sure. it's only a couple of minutes of editorial time. And the question is, what am I going to do on a given day? Mm-hmm. It, the stations like you to talk about what people are interested in and you know and obviously that's why we do the broadcasts uh, in 99 percent of the time the broadcasts mm-hmm. are done as you hear them so mm-hmm. that, you know I, mean, I don't i don't record stuff way in advance and i used to i used to do a lot of traveling around the country you know doing speaking dates and uh i i just don't do that anymore i have to be i have to be able to do the broadcasts uh and on, and on television that's that's also true i'm, sure. I'm really working seven days a week so i have to work on Saturday to prepare for Sunday, and uh, I do a fair number of interviews uh, during the course of the week that are used on Sunday morning. Yeah, it only took me two years to get back on, so I feel really good about that. <laughs> You're a busy guy. Yeah, it's, and and you know, I uh, my wife gives me uh, a, a certain amount of hell about it. Uh, <laughs> well, she thinks I've been doing. It, I've been at CBS now for 34 years. Yeah, and uh, you know, she says, "Come on, you know, let's uh, let's." Let's do something that, you know, where you can, you don't have to feel as if you've got one foot in the office all of a Sure. But, uh, I, I, I don't want to retire and I, 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 I don't think she really wants me to either. Mm-hmm. I think uh, patting me around the house might, might not be the boon she thinks it is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as you start pulling that banjo out six to eight hours a day, it could be a bad thing. Well, you know, I really don't do that very much. Come on, that's not what I hear. Catherine told me <laughs> that as much as possible you pull out that five string banjo, so. Well, I, I get a kick out of it, but I realize that not everybody uh, is this. Uh, so, so, so how does a, how does a guy with a classical music buff sit around and pick the banjo? I don't get it. Well, I thought you know I think it's quite musical, and in fact, and I and I think learning banjo licks is very. I mean, I find it's uh, it's almost mathematical. I mean, there's a, there's a there's, you have to use your fingers in ways that are more, in many ways more difficult than the piano. You know, yeah. I also play the piano, mm-hmm. and uh, at least the piano, it's all. 
it's all the keys always play the same note when you sure. when you touch them. But but with the banjo, it depends on what you're doing with the other hand. Yeah. And and, uh, and there are licks that you that you can learn. I had a very very good banjo player, mm-hmm. one of the best in the world. But Tony Trushka tried to teach me some uh, for for a while. I don't have time to take the lessons anymore. Mm-hmm. But I wish I I wish I could take some more lessons because mm-hmm. if you don't if you don't get better, then you start getting worse. Yeah. Yeah, one of the things that uh, you told me a long time ago, and I, funny, uh, that it's actually very good timing you're on today, Charles, because uh, I have I had a group of kids kind of job shadowing coming in and seeing about radio and things, and they came in during the break, and, and they kind of knew who you were, and they thought that was really great and all those kind of things. And, and I, I had to tell them something you told me a couple of years ago that I will never forget, and I and it was one of those gems that came along right when I needed it. You said, John, and this was off the air. You, we, we talked afterwards. You said, John? Never forget that you're a guest in people's lives. And I never forgot that every time I press that button, that somebody's somewhere suffering or that they could be in dire straits or they're in triumph or whatever it may be. And as you said, it's not my job to, job to ramrod my point of view constantly. There's enough of that in the world. Oh, yeah. We know that. You, you certainly recognize that when you hear it on the air. You can hear it all the time. And I think that's one of the reasons, not because I'm the, you know, coming from the greatest school of broadcast journalism. I don't even have a background in journalism or broadcasting is that there's enough of that stuff, and I think it's more about a viewing of points that gives us strength than just a point of view all the time. And I think that's what uh, your show does on Sunday mornings. Yeah, I, I, I think you were saying that. I, is, I think it, on television, that's by far the best uh, gig I've ever had, and I hope I can do it for a while longer. I really had no idea that this is what I would do. I, w- I was always interested in radio, but you know, I majored in economics at college. Mm-hmm. And I never took a broadcasting course. I never took a journalism course. All right. There's and hope the, for me yet. Well, see, I, I don't think. <laughs> I think to the extent that those things are devoted to the techniques mm-hmm. that are that are then being being used, uh, you know, eventually you learn those things anyway on the yeah. job. And and I think that a useful thing about I've tried to talk my own kids into this. The, the most valuable thing is a kind of generalist education where you learn how to think. was on the road we all watched him travel the country and bring these incredible stories to uh, to life and we watched him on sunday morning and then when he passed away the baton was passed on to you was it a difficult transition for you well those are big shoes to follow uh to step into but, but you know i understood about sunday morning i think i had done a lot of pieces for them mm-hmm. and i had i had filled in on occasion for charles uh, as anchor and uh it appealed to me very much the idea that Here's a broadcast, of, you know, devoted to the to the more noble side of uh, of human nature, and and also to nature. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. I, we do something at the end of each broadcast, which I know you know, John. Right? Absolutely. Which is to just go out and into some spot and look at the flora and the fauna, and and uh, we don't we don't play music in the background. We don't we don't do poetry. We don't we don't we don't try to gild the lily. We just show you the lily. Yeah. And and. It, People like that so much that it's a wonder that nobody else does it. Mm-hmm. And we find ourselves because it's a it's a it's sort of an accordion thing at the end of a broadcast. Uh, on an hour and a half broadcast, you can find yourself running late or early, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you have to make some adjustments as you go along. But that last segment, we like it to last uh, three minutes, three minutes uh, mm-hmm. ideally. But it's three minutes where the anchorman completely shuts up. Everybody shuts up. Yeah. And we just we visit someplace, and you have this sense of of having gone out into the into the wild, and it, it's it's.
it's almost a religious kind of a thing because on Sunday this Sunday morning, so sure. the broadcast has a certain liturgical quality to it. But but the, at the end of that, I think that's a great benediction for the show. Best vacation some people get all week. <laughs> but but people really do appreciate that. And when people write to us, they complain, mm-hmm. <laughs> which they you know they or they tell you what they think about this issue that we that we discussed. Mm-hmm. Um, almost all of it will start out by saying, "I've been listening to watching Sunday morning for a long time, and uh, you know I appreciate what you do." You know, but yeah. you, you know, this, this time you really screwed up. Yeah. But, but what they will do is that when they mention the things that they like, they will invariably include that little thing at the end, which is it's almost artless in that um, you don't even know that anything has been done except that somebody put a camera up there. But yeah. Of course, it is edited very skillfully. Yeah. Charlie, we're going to let you go because I know you're a busy guy. I appreciate your time today. Uh, we look forward every Sunday morning and, and watching you in that stool. And what you do for bow ties is not often done by anybody else in the world. Well, uh, Senator Paul Simon, though. Yeah. <laughs> there, you go. there you go. Charles Osgood, appreciate your time today. Thank you, John. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Take care. You take care. Bye-bye. Uh, it's good to hear his voice. Uh, just great stuff. I'm guessing that's probably from 03, 04. O two somewhere in there should have went in a different direction. O two O three O four somewhere in there, and you know he came out and and took over CBS Sunday Morning when uh, Charles Kowalt ended his run, and then he was this solid rock. You know the bow tie and the whole deal uh, was there, and then of course Jane Pauley comes along, who's just done a fantastic job. I really look forward to to seeing Jane on Sunday morning. In my opinion, my observation and my experience from this side of a microphone, not television, it is the best and most well-produced, concise broadcast on television. 60 Minutes is much the same, different uh, content, obviously, and a little bit uh, different bend, but what they do on Sunday morning is just expert to me, and they make it look really easy, and I know that it's not. Anyway, I want to thank you for spending time with me today. You know, there's a lot of options that you have these days that you didn't have 10, 15, 20 years ago. Back in the day, when even 10 years ago at WGN, you'd turn the dial to listen to somebody else or something else or music or whatever. And now there's just so many choices. I'm really very, very well aware of the fact uh, that when I hear back from people, whether they're here in the States or abroad, uh, that they listen to this program. I just, I think of the Charlie Osgoods and the Bill Curtises and, and all the rest of the great broadcasters who reminded me that this is a calling and a career at the same time. That if I stop this, that's on me. I could do that. But what am I going to do on Saturday morning? Watch Mighty Mouse? That's well, not a bad idea, actually. Anyway, I'm just very thankful that you're here. To all those people who subscribe and support the show, thank you so much for doing that. And, uh, you know, I mentioned in the clip, and Charlie and I went back and forth about his banjo picking. Literally, I had I couldn't find it this morning, but somewhere there was a there was a clip that we had that he was literally playing his banjo in the bathroom, in his bathrobe, in Paris. <laughs> so with all that in mind, uh, we're going to send Charlie out with this one from Eric Weisberg. It was a big hit in the 70s, uh, of course, dueling banjos. Until next time, be well, safe travels, keep the faith.